AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, Brett Johnson with you here on a Tuesday afternoon. And today we are joined by the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer, Patrick Kulikan, who's going to be talking about some of the great stories they've been working on over at minnesotareformer.com. As today we're going to be talking about some data from the deer hunt and what we can learn from that. We are also going to be talking about the guy who took Mike Lindell up on his offer of a $5 million reward to disprove his claims of election fraud back in the 2020 election cycle. We'll also be talking about Minnesota's very complicated grant systems and problems with the Minnesota Republican Party and their efforts to try to oust their current chairman, David Hahn. So lots to get to today. Patrick, thanks so much for coming back on. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. So let's start off talking about the deer hunt, uh, since that is still taking place, at least in uh, some respects, uh, as we're speaking right now. Because the reason I'm talking about this is that Christopher Ingram, the data reporter for The Reformer, was able to uncover some data of uh, what we've been seeing so far from the deer hunt. And it comes in the face of, well, as Christopher writes, efforts to reinstate a Minnesota wolf hunt that continue to gain steam on the heels of what was largely a disappointing deer season as there is this group called Hunters for Hunters, which is a newly formed advocacy group that has been holding meetings across the state to try to drum up support for their cause. Their arguments are heavy on an antidote with tales of failed hunts. Disappearing deer and wolf prints in the snow feature heavily in their discussions. The impression they give, which is echoed by a lot of uh, sympathetic media and political figures, is that northern Minnesota deer are on the verge of going extinct. But when you get a chance to really look at the data, it's a little bit more spotty on this right now as I'm looking through kind of where we have the southwest extent of the wolf range and it looked like we have some mixed data in terms of well whether we did have uh, an unsuccessful or a successful deer hunt season. What do you make of this data that Christopher was able to uncover Patrick? Uh, yeah I think that um, Chris's whole point and he's uh, he's now written a, a few times about this is that uh, all the anecdotes of hunters uh, which have been parroted by politicians and sympathetic media figures uh, they they don't actually uh, reflect uh, the reality as as we have from uh, deer census figures and what we know about um, how many deer were actually uh, uh, bagged in the recent uh, in the recent uh, hunting season um, and um, what Chris has uh, has reported is that the the reason uh, that uh, deer counts could be down. Is because of the harsh winters that we've had um, a few years in a row, and this follows a pattern uh, going back uh, 10 years when we had another harsh winter. Uh, also, if you actually look at the numbers, there's some some regions of the state where uh, the numbers are uh, are actually up, and and we've seen an increase in uh, deer, and some of that has occurred uh, in the in the uh, regions where we would find wolves. Um, so we're just seeing a lot of noise and uh, a lot of heat around this argument uh, and not quite enough light. And that's what Chris has tried to uh, try to provide here. And uh, I mean, one thing that he's also pointed out, which is really interesting, is that at the same time that we're hearing from deer hunters that we have to start killing wolves to uh, preserve the deer, um, the same time uh, farmers are saying that there's too many deer and it's, it's uh, hurting the, their livestock. Um, they're eating the grains, and so there's some irony there. Um, and uh, my, my joke is that I wonder if some of the same people are making the same arguments. Um, 
but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that as you hear lots from uh, the, the local media um, about uh, this group, Hunters for Hunters, and, and their sympathetic uh, politicians and uh, media figures, uh, take it with a grain of salt and look at the data because the data shows something else. I like that name too as the advocacy group, Hunters for Hunters. Uh, I kind of got a kick out of that one. But I also wanted to look at some data as Christopher was able to uncover our deer hunt numbers comparing 2022 to 2023. And while there was a big decline in terms of our uh, deer hunt numbers in northeastern Minnesota specifically, well, there could be more reasons than just, well, blaming it on wolves. Isn't that correct? Like, as you were alluding to, there could be harsh winters, loss of habitat. There are lots of reasons for why there are certain areas that, well, didn't see much of a deer hunt this year. Yeah, I and mean, all you have to do is go back and look at the, the history here. And in years when you have a severe winter, there are fewer deer. Um, and so the last really severe winter, um, I remember it because I was in, I was in Michigan, it was 13-14. And sure enough, you had uh, lower deer counts. So um, there's there's more here than just uh, one predator. And I, I'm sure the other, the other thing is that, uh, you know, I mean, you can you can go. Uh, I mean, there are deer everywhere. <laughs> they're they're going through everybody's yeah. backyards. Uh, now, granted, th- th- these folks that are complaining are are in the far northeast Minnesota. Um, but I think the idea that uh, there, there's a shortage of deer or deer going extinct um, is a little hard to believe. Um, deer are well situated um, to survive um, and be prolific in this uh, environment. I'll encourage you to go check out Christopher Ingram's article, Maps Reveal Where Deer Hunters Struck Big and Struck Out, because it's important to look at the data when you hear oftentimes politicians and advocacy groups uh, sometimes maybe giving you data that isn't quite accurate or maybe a little bit skewed. Find that over at minnesotareformer.com. Well, let's move on and talk a little bit about Mike Lindell, because Bob Zeidman is a guy who took up Mike Lindell on his challenge of $5 million to anyone who could disprove his claims that the 2020 election was stolen. You might remember Mike Lindell making that offer a few years ago. Well, Zeidman took him up on it, and he's a guy who is well qualified to do it, because he's a cyber forensics expert who has programmed computers for about 50 years. He was a pioneer in the field of software forensics and founded several successful Silicon Valley firm. So this wasn't just some guy sitting in his basement. He's very qualified. And what's interesting about this guy too is that he was able to disprove Mike Lindell's claims. But what I find interesting about this guy too, Patrick, is that he was not someone that was just looking to troll Mike Lindell, a Democrat or a liberal. This guy was a big-time Trump supporter who also had a lot of respect for Mike Lindell with what he went through with addiction, Mike Lindell's battle with addiction. So this is a – Dina Winter had a chance to speak with this guy, and I found this conversation interesting that she had with him just because I didn't know how much of a guy – a Trump supporter this guy was. He wasn't out there just to troll Lindell. He was largely out here to try to take Lindell at his face value and then finding out that, well, well, most of this so-called data that Lindell had was largely gibberish. Yeah, so uh, the listeners might remember that Dina, uh, a couple of weeks or so ago, published a story that was a great account of kind of hanging out with Mike Lindell and, and the, the frenzied uh, life of Mike Lindell as he tries to uh, end our reliance on election uh, voting machines while also saving his pillow company. And uh, after that ran... 
this gentleman reached out and he, he really is uh, kind of a unicorn and the last guy that Mike Lindell uh, sh- should have uh, been going up against. He, because uh, as you say, he was, he said he voted for Trump. He said he didn't like Trump necessarily, but he voted for him. He's yeah. clearly a conservative guy. Uh, he, he said he, he admired like Mike Lindell who built a business and recovered from drug and alcohol or, or is in recovery from drug and alcohol abuse uh, and addiction. And, uh, so he goes there to this symposium that you may remember Mandel had uh, in early 21, I think it was, or fall of 21. And um, he finds that the whole thing is just uh, made up. And uh, the, the, and he, and he uh, uh, makes this discovery and he, he's almost disappointed. Uh, he, you know, he figures Surely, Lindell uh, is not going to give us a bunch of bad, bad data. And it's not clear whether Lindell is kind of in on it or not. But the bottom line is he's proven that this uh, trove of data is just gibberish. And now Mike Lindell, for his this contest, prove me wrong and I'll give you $5 million, owes this guy $5 million. And of course, Lindell's now fighting it. And you were talking about is kind of questionable as to whether Lindell knew this data was fake because basically uh, what what Zybin did is that he had this 23 gigabyte document from Lindell's folks, which largely just turned out to be nothing but zeros and ones. I think he was saying he could even open it on a Word document. And yeah, there are questions as to whether Lindell knew about this. And I take it uh, Zybin is probably not expecting to get this $5 million eventually, correct? Well... You know, a mediator has said he's owed the money. Yeah. And, you know, at some point, presumably, um, Lindell will have to pay. Um, but it could be years. He could drag it out forever, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, in, in litigation. If you have if you have lawyers, uh, you could do that. Um, but, yeah, and, and the other interesting thing is that he, he points to this guy named Dennis Montgomery, um, who is kind of seems to have been some of the the originator of, of some of the um, this hypothesis about uh, election interference and um, and he's a long-standing uh, a guy who's let's put it this way I don't want to get sued here from our uh, this little radio appearance but he's been uh, accused of, of, of all kinds of uh, perjury and uh, misleading the United States government in all kinds of uh, court proceedings and legal documents. That's the origins of a lot of this is a guy named Dennis Montgomery who's got just a long history of, uh, let's say, deception. Um, and and so that was another red flag for this guy. And it's just it's just quite a story. And, and of course, it's probably going to happen again. I mean, we can expect this kind of uh, thing to happen uh, after November election. Yeah, I encourage you to read more about that over at minnesotareformer.com, minnesotareformer.com, because you'll want to get a little more information about this guy, Dennis Montgomery, and this uh, software he has kind of created that can, uh, well, make uh, documents appear a little bit different than they really are. Uh, Check it out over at minnesotareformer.com. All right, let's move on and talk a little bit more about the political realm and the drama that is currently happening, well, with the Minnesota Republican Party, because as I understand it, they were attempting to, well, at least uh, 
group of uh, Minnesota Republicans were trying to oust the current chair of the party, David Hahn. This was mostly a group of MAGA Republicans. Now, as I understand it, Patrick, this effort over the weekend was largely not successful, but one of the leaders at the convention, Larry Deuce, thought this whole thing was kind of a catastrophe with the idea that Republicans, with all the turmoil they're facing right now, specifically here in Minnesota, on the MAGA side, are still trying to focus on taking down David Hahn and were largely unsuccessful in doing so. Yeah, I mean, it's um, so David Hahn, the chairman, former state senator, uh, he remains in place. Um, but it's just kind of another distraction uh, for the for the state party, uh, which has really struggled, I would say, since uh, the summer of uh, 21, when Jennifer Carnahan uh, was was faced with the, the problem of a big party donor um, and operative who was uh, accused and eventually convicted of a underage uh, sex trafficking ring. And the chaos has just kind of been constant since then. Um, and of course, punctuated by the disastrous 2022 election. The other problem is that the, the party doesn't have any money. Um, that's been true for quite some time. They, they were doing a little better. Uh, but this, I think this chaos, the bad election, you know, donors really have to think twice. And uh, the Republicans also have a number of, uh, you know, legitimate kind of aligned groups like the Jobs Coalition, the, this, the Chamber of Commerce has their own political uh, arm and uh, the, the business partnership. And I think donors are thinking, you know, why wouldn't I give to one of those organizations that uh, is run by somebody that I know and, and can trust and, and not by uh, this constant tomfoolery uh, over at the at the state Republican Party. So the the insurgency failed this weekend, uh, but I, I think it is a, just a sign of uh, more dysfunction. The question is, you know, does it matter? Because uh, the, the the 2024 election is is going to be uh, dominated by the Trump Biden um, campaign, presumably, and, and a lot of earned media. And, you know, do you need functioning state party uh, when you've got uh, the the greatest showman in, in uh, recent American political history at the top of the ticket? That's 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 the big question. But I think close elections like in these in the state house, which is where the the and the, and the second congressional district, these are the competitive races. They can be decided by very few votes, and that's where a party organization that can organize, recruit and organize volunteers can really matter. And finally, I uh, want to talk about one more column that was written in The Reformer today before we wrap things up. And this is one from Chuck Johnson, who is a former deputy commissioner at the Minnesota Department of Human Services. And he wrote a column talking about the very complicated grants system we have in Minnesota. Now, it might sound kind of dry, but uh, get this here from, from the article, though. Back in August of 2022, the Office of the Legislative Auditor released an audit examining the Department of Human Services Administration of Grants and Housing of Homelessness Programs, and the 
Audit found that the DHS did not have adequate controls to ensure compliance with applicable legal requirements and did not always comply with significant legal requirements related to grant management. All right, so you picked up that part. But interestingly, the DHS apparently found out that there was no indication of any of the funds associated with those grants that were misspent. So they were used for their intended purposes. So that's where we bring in Chuck Johnson's column, because he brings up this point that in the DHS, at least, they have a documented 86-step program to manage a grant from start to finish. Patrick, that sounds absolutely insane. I know we oftentimes hear people joking about uh, government red tape, and oftentimes it's warranted, but 86 steps is pretty insane to take that uh, grant from start to finish. Yeah, and then the point of that is uh, so that the money uh, won't be misused and that it's used well. Um, but there's just, I, th- I think it's just uh, bureaucratic mandates that are layered one on top of the other. And I don't necessarily, I mean, the, the point that Chuck makes is that there's no, there's no evidence that, um, that it's actually effective. Uh, you know, Chuck kind of um, alludes to this. He doesn't really go into it deeply. But my, my question is, he says that there's 2,000 grant contracts that just in the Department of Human Services. And, you know, I, I think that there's, there's an argument, to, to, especially reaching underserved populations, that certain nonprofits can cater well and they should be uh, given these grants. But I, I think that this kind of thing should have us rethinking the way that we do social services, and maybe we ought to be bringing more of it in-house. Um, because, like, for instance, the Feeding Our Future uh, scandal where all this money was stolen um, that was supposed to be intended for, for hungry children, the the problem starts with having with giving sending money out the door to these phony nonprofits. Mm-hmm. Whereas if it was just something the government did, or if you just gave people cash so that they could spend money on food, um, that might be a more direct, uh, kind of cleaner way to do things and uh, less uh, prone to fraud. So Chuck doesn't really address that quite directly. Um, I, I think it'd be interesting if he does so in the future. If, if he doesn't, I might in a column because I think that's something to consider uh, when you're giving out 2,000 grants uh, to, with, with all of these bureaucratic steps. It, it's bound to um, really hinder government's ability to provide the services that, uh, that we want. Yeah, and sometimes uh, there even is fraud, as we saw with the Feeding Our Future program, and you would think maybe things would just be efficient if we just handle this in-house, because, yeah, certainly all of these steps to all these controls are necessary if you're going to be giving out government money to different organizations. You want to make sure it's well spent, but it is a good point as to whether it'd be better off just keeping it in-house and then maybe saving some of that money on the red tape, and maybe overall just having it run better by bringing it in-house. So, yeah, as you said, Chuck... And we have a pretty pretty good... We have a good program that to feed hungry children. It's called Free School Lunch. Yeah. <laughs> and it's in every public school. And we don't outsource that to some nonprofit. We, we, just, mm-hmm. we just do it. And, uh, and, and you skip a lot of this, um, this bureaucratic um, morass that, that you find with, the, with trying to manage all these grants. 
And I wonder, too, if uh, at the state legislature, if you ever were to take a look at maybe trying to bring some of these things in-house, yeah, you would probably would get some pushback from some of these organizations that do receive money, which I could see really kind of crossing some political lines if the legislature were to take an aggressive step saying, hey, let's try to move some of these things in-house. It would be a a little complicated, but I think as Chuck's column demonstrates, uh, something's got to change, at least with our grants program. Yeah, that would be uh, politically very dicey yeah. <laughs> uh, because you've got a, a, a lot of nonprofits that are aligned um, with, uh, especially with the DFL. Yeah, it would be a very, but both very... parties actually. Yeah, yeah, most certainly. Yeah. Well, make sure you check that out over at minnesotareformer.com and the other articles we talked about and columns over minnesotareformer.com, minnesotareformer.com. We have been speaking with Patrick Kulikan, who is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. Patrick, as always, thanks for coming on the show today. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, let's take a break and send things back over to Matt McNeil on AM 950.